There are advantages to living in a country that's long been a cultural crossroad. We are in the heart of the Balkans, so our food has something Turkish, something Greek, something Mediterranean. Coming up, we'll get a look at the great things Bulgaria has to offer. For Francine Falk-Allen, dealing with the challenges of polio has never kept her from trying to explore the world. And it took me a while to realize that other people saw me as disabled and that I did need to accept that I had limitations. She tells us what she's found in traveling abroad with the challenges of a physical disability. And discover the epic stories Richard Cohen found on a global odyssey to view the sun from across the world and through the centuries. Over 3,000 stone buildings around the world mark the sun either as places of worship or natural observatories, sometimes with Stonehenge or the pyramids, they act as both. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook. When you live in a northern marine climate like I do here in Seattle, you learn not to take the sun for granted. Richard Cohen reveals a few surprises he discovered about the sun and how it's been a star attraction in human history, so to speak, a little later in the hour ahead. And Francine Falk-Allen shares pointers for traveling the world unencumbered, despite the complications that aging and disabilities can bring. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with a country that feels like one of Eastern Europe's best backdoor destinations. The Land of Roses offers a prime coastline, breathtaking peaks, vast forests, Roman ruins, Orthodox monasteries, all in a crossroads of cultures that just might be Eastern Europe's best-kept secret. We're talking about Bulgaria. The gentle and soulful Bulgarians promise you a memorable visit at bargain prices. And to learn about that, we're joined by Sofia-based tour guides Stefan Bozajev and Yuri Boyanin. Stefan and Yuri, thanks for joining us. Our pleasure, Rick. We thank you, Rick. Now, Yuri, when you think about Bulgaria, first of all, we don't know a lot about it here in the United States, and it's a fascinating land, I think, to a great extent, because it's a crossroads. Mm -hmm. It really is. Who is coming in, and what are the layers of the history? Everybody, from the Romans, from the Thracians, from the Scythians, Vikings. Vikings were there so many times. Arabs came as well in the 8th century, then the Turks came... The Turks meaning Crusaders. The, the Ottomans yes. and the, and the oh, Crusaders yes. yeah. came through. Yeah. Everybody, Russians. It's really just every town, every village that we have has so many layers. And sometimes, Rick, culture is not only ruins, but culture lives inside people. As all these people, they did raid a lot. but So they raided, they, they brought raided, their culture, yeah. they yeah. left their seeds. Yeah. And today, Bulgaria is known as the land of roses. Stefan, what's with the roses in Bulgaria? Roses. When we talk about roses, this is Bulgaria. We have a very special type of roses, the Rose of Damascus. It is in a very tiny valley in the middle of the country. Actually, in the very place where I was born. And every single May and June, there are those blossoming fields in pink colors. And this aroma is all around. And afterwards, we use it for production of what? Rose oil probably the best export of Bulgaria. So this is part of the industry, is rose oil. It's important part, and nowadays it is protected. Not anyone could produce it. So you have to be only in this small valley. 
in the heart of Bulgaria. And as a tourist, you can buy these wonderful carved wood veils that are filled with rose water. It's a nice little souvenir. And the roots go back actually hundreds of years because, for instance, Bulgarians, when they used to travel west, they would actually bring these little things as gifts. And that tradition survives yeah, until this does. day. Now, Stefan and Yuri, you're both from Sofia, the capital city. Yuri, what would we see in Sofia? Why would we visit Sofia if we're going to go to other great cities? Roman ruins, a host of amazing museums, to be honest, some great food. Mm-hmm. The food scene has developed tremendously in the last few years. There is a lot of variety. There is traditional Bulgarian cuisine, but with a modern touch. We are in the heart of the Balkans, so our food has something Turkish, something Greek, something Mediterranean, you know, something what, what, northern my, as well. My memories go back over 30 years going to Bulgaria, and I remember these yellow kind of cobblestone streets, and I remember a little bit of Soviet-style architecture with stars on the top. Those buildings are still there, but the They're stars are gone. Unfortunately, yes, but you can actually see the star. Where do you go? All the communist monuments, they are in this Museum of Totalitarian Art. An easy metro right out of the downtown. In 15 minutes, you'll be there, and you get to see a lot of communist old stuff. So if you're interested in social realism, that was the art that kept the people down. But it's not only in the art. museum. It's mm-hmm. on the streets as well. We still have a lot of old statues in the countryside as well. We have a lot of communist memorials. It's is there, huge. A, is there would, a discussion whether you should keep those or tear them down? Because there's there a lot, lot of, of discussions bad feelings, every day. and they do survive. Every day. These memorials are celebrating communist ideals, and yeah. they survive today. They still survive. All of them are still there in the countryside. Most of them are completely abandoned. Stefan, if I was coming to Sofia and I wanted to understand a little bit about the city that was special, there are these click shops. What is that? Oh, click shops. Every single citizen of <laughs> Sofia is very keen on them. It's a small shop where you can buy cigarettes, alcohol, soft drinks, but it is practically in the basements of all buildings. There's a tiny window, so you have to practically kneel down, put your head inside the window and ask the vendor, I need this pack of cigarettes or the candies here. And it's very funny to observe people like lining and the first one kneeling. <laughs> what is the word klek? Is that, what does that mean? Yeah, it comes from a Bulgarian word klakam. Well, does that mean kneel? Kneel, kneel down. Kneel. So there's a tiny shop on the corner where you get what you need. Now, Sofia is the big modern capital, but my favorite city in Bulgaria really is Plovdiv. Yuri, tell us about Plovdiv. Plovdiv is amazing. It's, it's a beautiful amazing. town. Yeah, it's developed tremendously. Its culture is just... It's It's got a lot of Ottoman architecture. It has these, a lot of Ottoman wooden architecture. Wooden balconies yes. and a, sort of a Turkish elegance. Roman architecture as well, lots of Roman ruins. Every day there is something happening in Plovdiv. Right, right on the main square, there's a big pedestrian boulevard, and then you look under it, there's a little park, and you see Roman ruins. Mosaics as well. Recently they uncovered the large basilica of Plovdiv with some of the most spectacular Roman mosaics so, that we have. So the two great cities to see in Bulgaria would be Sofia and Plovdiv. Yes. Back in communist times, you couldn't travel very far, you didn't have a lot of money. I think everybody went to the Black Sea coast. Varna yep. was is just, this is communism, we all vacation the same way, we're all equal. Varna. Uh, today, you can go anywhere in the world for your beach vacation. Would somebody still choose to go to the Black Sea coast? Oh, actually, if you come to Bulgaria, and especially in Varna in the summer, you see beautiful beaches. No rocks there. It's pure sand for miles and miles. And a lot of people, not only Bulgarians, but people from all around Europe and Russia still come there. So if you're going on a vacation in Bulgaria to the Black Sea, Bulgaria faces the, the Black Sea, where would you go? 
Well, still many people go to the southern Bulgarian Black Sea coast. But if you're a clever traveler, you'll go to the northern one. Better beaches, not overcrowded, okay. much more affordable. And that would be just next to Romania, right? On the Black Sea yes, coast. Yes, it yeah. will be to the north from Varna and to the south from the border with Romania. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stefan Bozhajev and Yuri Boyanin. We're talking about Bulgaria with two guides from Sofia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Josh has sent us an email from California. And Josh writes, I lived in Bulgaria, and if you go to the Rila Monastery, do yourself a favor and spend the night coming in with the tourist hordes and departing at 3 o'clock in the afternoon with the rest of the tourist crowds does not do the place justice. Staying the night allows you to take the hike on the trail to St. Ivan of Rila's grave and an opportunity to experience the monastery at night and early in the morning when no tourists are there. The rooms inside the monastery are nothing special, but they're certainly affordable and add to the whole experience. Yuri, first of all, what's the importance of the Rila Monastery in Bulgaria? Rila Monastery is really the spiritual heart of Bulgaria. All those years under a lot of invaders, actually, it was that monastery which kept the old spirit of Bulgaria. It has a massive library of ancient manuscripts, you know, I wa- thousands I wanna, of books. I want to interrupt you there because all over Europe, in my experience, when a country is invaded, the traditional culture, the soul of the country, survives in the mountains in a monastery. It does. It's that it way does. in Catalonia, yes. outside of Barcelona, mm-hmm. and it's that way and in Rila Mountain, Bulgaria. The monastery itself is actually in the heart of the mountains. R-I-L-A, Rila yeah. Monastery. So this is the Orthodox Christian soul of Bulgaria. Yes, it is. And every, it's on every list, so people go there during the day. It's a, a living monastery. Uh, there's a tradition with the art on the wall that goes back centuries and do they actually welcome tourists to sleep there? Oh, yes, they do. They do. The conditions are monastic. as you would expect monastic. in a monastery, we can call of it course. Like a monk. Although, monks themselves, they do have large plasma screens in their cells. Plasma so screens their, in monks' cells? Life has Say changed a lot, Rick, so. yes. <laughs> but for visitors, not much has changed, actually. Stefan, when you think of the Orthodox faith, during communism, it must have been a different environment than today. It is very interesting. As all the other communist countries, the religion was opium for the masses. It was suppressed. Uh, there were people spying on you if you'd go to the church for the holidays. And if you go, there'll be bad consequences, not only for you, but for your family members. And after the fall of the communist regime in Bulgaria in 1989, what happened to the religion? It was freedom. And in our new constitution, there's one interesting article. And this article says that... Orthodox Christianity is the traditional religion in Bulgaria. Not the official one, but traditional. We pay respect to our roots. That's but of a very course nice it's not the only it. one, because we have a large number of Muslims, we have quite a sizable Jewish population, mm-hmm. and we also have quite a lot of Roman Catholics as well. So it's uh, incredibly diverse. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stefan Bozerjev and Yuri Boyanin about Bulgaria. We've talked about a few things. We're running out of time. I would just like each of you to offer one more site that people should know about when they're thinking about visiting Bulgaria. Stefan. Definitely, it will be our medieval capital, Veliko Ternovo. It is one of the most dramatically situated cities all around Europe, along the waters of Yantra River. And there you can see the combination of our medieval fortresses, but most importantly, 
the real living heritage, the artisans. There's a whole street of artisans. There's, There's a, a whole street fascinating of artisans. Yeah. Icon painters, uh, pottery makers, silversmiths. And this is called Vilica Turnovo. And Yuri, what else should we remember about? I would mention the small town of Nesebar on the Black Sea coast. Ah, what is the name again? Nesebar. Nesebar. And why? Charming old alleys, mm-hmm. wonderful location on the Black Sea. And the key thing is, of course, not to visit at the height of summer, from mid-July until mid-August. But outside of this month, you can have a lot of the charming streets to your own. And our final thought, if I'm coming to Bulgaria, what is one thing I should be sure to eat? Yuri. Shopska salad. Shopska salad is like Greek salad, but better. <laughs> so that would be with what ingredients in a Shopska salad? Very similar to the Greek salad, but the main difference, yes, is that we actually shred the cheese. The shredded cheese, yeah. and, and then you've got... Lots of cheese. You've got tomatoes. Greens and, greens. and tomatoes and cucumbers, peppers as well. Shopska salad, I love it. And Stefan? I would definitely go for one traditional uh, pastry. That's banitsa. It is uh, filo with eggs and cheese. And we can eat it for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. And there are a lot of variations. So this is a a flaky filo dough? Absolutely. Okay. And the name again? Banitsa. Banitsa. One of the very few words I know in Bulgaria is blagodaria. What did I say? Thank you. Nice. And what do you say? Mola. I hope that means you're welcome. Absolutely. One other word I know is Dobrodan. What is that? Good day. Good day to both of you. Good day, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Nogu bogudere, guys. It was a pleasure. Whether you need a mobility scooter to get around or are just dealing with a wonky knee, the determination of our next guest promises to help you tackle the physical challenges of traveling. Francine Falk-Allen explains why she calls herself a wild handicapper. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. A vaccine for polio was discovered in 1955, but that was a few years after three-year-old Francine contracted that paralyzing disease. Despite the challenges of a partially paralyzed right leg and a severe limp, Francine Falk-Allen has never let her disabilities keep her home. Her experience has taught her plenty of practical tips for travels with physical disabilities, whether in the U.S. or abroad. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to offer tips for enjoying our world without letting physical limitations get in the way. Francine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. I'm glad to be here. This is so exciting uh, that you're sharing your experience in your book, No Spring Chicken. And first of all, tell us about your, your disability. Tell us the story of that. I had polio when I was three, was hospitalized for six months. They thought that I would never walk again and would always be in a wheelchair but the physical therapist gave it a go and said that they thought they could get me up walking. So I had a brace for about two years and walked with kinney sticks, which are half size crutches that just have arm cuffs. And then gradually was allowed to not use those anymore and went on to live somewhat of a normal life. My right leg is partially paralyzed. My foot is fully paralyzed Mm -hmm. and it's two inches shorter than the other leg and it's weak. Mm -hmm. So I walk with a pronounced limp. And at this stage in my life, I'm 73 and I use uh, different types of devices. I use a cane or I use arm cuff crutches and I have a mobility scooter that I take for traveling. So that's my state. So um, with all the the experience and, and, the, and the support from these tools that you have, how does it limit your travels? I can't go places that require 
a huge amount of walking, although I did when I was younger, but it was really exhausting for me. So we prefer places that are somewhat flat and have paved surfaces so I can take my mobility scooter. And I don't have to stay on it all the time, but it allows me to go to places I wouldn't otherwise be able to access. I mean, I can't go backpacking. Yeah, right. Yeah. But you know, anytime I meet somebody who is courageous and bold and embraces life in spite of their disabilities, I I think it's great they're sharing their experience because it inspires others. And a lot of people in your situation wouldn't travel as much as you've traveled. What gave you the desire to travel? Because you could have just said, no, travel's not in the cards for me. When I was young, I didn't see myself as disabled. And it took me a while to realize that other people saw me as disabled and that I did need to accept that I had limitations. And so when I was a little girl, I used to get those astrological, well, they don't have them anymore, but there used to be these little rolls you could get at the drugstore or Woolworths that had a horoscope in them. And I was a Sagittarius. So I believed that travel was my right and that it was something I would do someday. So when I became an adult, I I bought a Ford Econoline van and I traveled up and down the state of California whenever I could. I, t- I think I took my first plane flight from from Sonoma County or San Francisco down to Southern California when I was about 30. And I was hooked. You know, that oh, was, yeah. I was scared the first time, but I just thought, okay, no limitations. You know, I love that notion, or, or I find it so fascinating that somebody with what would conventionally be thought of as, as a, a ceiling on what they could do doesn't realize that ceiling's there until other people say, well, that's the expectation. And you've realized, nope, you can just find a way to, to make it happen. By the way, Francine, I, I want to be careful with the terminology that I use because uh, things change and sensibilities are, are more focused. And, and if you could help me out here, I noticed on the cover of your book, you nickname yourself the wild handicapper. Um, what is the proper terms to use and, and what do we want to stay away from? In the 90s, when a group of stalwart people got the Americans for Disabilities Act passed, they are Americans with Disabilities Act. They really made it clear that they didn't want to be called handicapped anymore, that they prefer the term a person with a disability so that you're identified as a person first and with yeah. a disability. Secondly, I don't mind the term handicapped for myself. And I feel that it implies that uh, you just need a little assistance and that right. you aren't fully disabled. But I do have a disability, and I, for me, it doesn't matter which I'm called. But for a lot of people, it makes a big difference. I think there's that fundamental, it's not a hungry person, it's a person experiencing hunger. It's not a handicapped person, it's a person with physical disabilities. Is that kind of a determining factor on what's correct these that's, days? That's kind of it. You know, they used to call people who'd had polio, polios. And I've heard that even recently in the last few years in documentaries mm-hmm. where, right. where Roosevelt was referred to as a polio. Well, they did a survey in our national polio organization a few years ago. And what we prefer is polio survivors, most ah, of us. Right. Most of us don't like to be called a polio, just like you wouldn't call a friend a cancer or a diabetes. Sure. Or no, that makes total that sense. That sort of thing. Yeah. Francine, it just seems like a a godsend to have that mobility scooter. And a lot of us step right over 
the little ramps on the sidewalks that let people go from one level to the other, but those are critical for your mobility. You must be thankful for that even when you're exploring Yosemite. Yes, uh, yeah, I really appreciate them a great deal. When the Americans for Disabilities Act was passed and ramps were put in a lot of different places, I hadn't realized how much I was going to appreciate them too, Mm -hmm. because walking with a cane, it's easier for me to go up a ramp than stairs. But with a scooter, you have to have a ramp. I mean, mine is quite lightweight, so my husband can lift it up on a curb, and I can do that as well when that's necessary. But for some scooters, they're much too heavy to be able to lift them, and, and ramps are essential. You mentioned how it was a, a real advantage to be able to take the taxi rather than using public uh, a subway or something like that. I've got friends in Europe who are tour guides and they have license to take their vehicles into the traffic-free center of town because they take travelers with physical disabilities around. And to have that mobility and a driver and a city that lets the guide with a vehicle providing this service really is a great equalizer, I think, for people trying to get around efficiently in the city. Yes. In Edinburgh, I love Edinburgh, and they have very high curbs there, and they've installed ramps that are quite steep, but you can make it up them. Mm -hmm. And for the military tattoo, which is not all military, it's just called the military tattoo, but it's a big show up at the castle, and they allow disabled people to go up there in a cab or with a driver to be left off. There are a lot of places in Europe that make yeah. really good accommodations. The trains are really great. Now, you've traveled, you've traveled internationally, and of course, you know, Yosemite and Edinburgh might have these kind of uh, support and, and programs that, that help people with disabilities get around. But you talk also about countries like India and Egypt. How realistic is it for somebody uh, with a disability like yours to enjoy India? When I was there, I didn't have a scooter, and I did a great deal of walking. India is only recently getting on board with accommodating disabilities, and there are millions of polio survivors there who are much younger than I am Hmm. because polio was only eradicated there in the last 10 years or so. So it's unusual when you go there to see disabled people out and about, or at least it was when I traveled there. It's been a while since I was there. Mm -hmm. But uh, generally, having a disability is is thought to be something where you just stay home for the rest of your life, and you need to have some kind of stay-at-home profession to support yourself because no one's going to marry you and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So I got stared at a lot. I mean, I, I because guess you were a person assumed, with a disability out and about. Exactly. And I think they assumed that I must be quite wealthy in order right. to be able to travel. You know, I never thought about that, but there's probably a dark reality that on half the planet, uh, the same disability of, that somebody else may be able to live a, a reasonably open life with, their world is just stay at home. It's, you don't go out. You just, if you have a, some kind of a livelihood, you can, you can eke out an existence. But uh, thankfully, in the developed world and with countries that, that have initiatives, you know, like the Americans with Disabilities Act, the world becomes much more open. That's true. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about traveling, I'm, we focus on Europe. I, I know Europe varies from country to country in so many ways. You can't paint Europe with a broad brush. You've traveled throughout Europe. Um, how would you, just in a nutshell, compare the sensibilities uh, from country to country in Europe for people traveling with disabilities? Some of them are easier than others. I did find that in the UK, 
even Ireland, Ireland, Scotland, and England, they're very helpful at the train stations. They will set up a ramp for you to be able to get on the train. And if you let them know in advance, then they set that up, they expect it. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't call in advance, they are ready to do that. All you have to do is ask. That's not necessarily true in France, although the the fast train in, in the France is... Yeah, yeah. It's really easy to take, but you might need to have a little help getting on and off. Right. So it depends. I haven't been to every country in Europe, obviously. What would you find just in general, if you're traveling domestically or in Europe or Pacific Rim or whatever, what is good news for you when you're lacing together a day of activities? We love to go hear music. So that's something that's almost always accessible. There are some places, there's one particular theater we went to in San Francisco that had no elevator and we had upstairs seats. So that was a big surprise. But that's another case where you check in advance, as you were mentioning, it's good to do your research in advance if you have a disability. You can, you can still do a lot of things, but not everything is going to be available. So going to museums is often a, a good choice because they usually have wheelchairs available for people all over the world, I have found. And, you know, someone can push you unless you have your own scooter. And a lot of musical venues are great. And we love good food. So also just going to a park or a botanical garden or something like that is something that... Oh, enjoying, is, yeah, enjoying the waves, enjoying bird watching and enjoying people watching. There's a lot of activities that um, are kind of the great equalizer when it comes to people with different uh, degrees of physical ability. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Francine Falk-Allen. She's the author of No Spring Chicken, and she's sharing tips for planning your travels, whether you live with a long-time disability or contending with the physical issue that we all face as we get older. We have a link to her blog with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. By the way, the Americans with Disabilities Act is such a blessing for people with physical disabilities, uh, specifically for a traveler. What, what are the practical values of this act when you're on the road in the United States? And, of course, all countries don't have that. But here in the United States, uh, what are examples of why, practically, why you're thankful for that act? Well, the parking is certainly much better. It's really horrible to have to walk a quarter of a mile if you're on a walker or using canes or crutches. And for people in wheelchairs, it can actually be dangerous to have to cross traffic and that sort of thing. So disabled person parking is especially important. Mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, again, ramps are critical. There are places that we just can't go if there are too many stairs. Mm. So that's really important as well. Mm -hmm. And also, a lot of times, a hidden aspect is that people with disabilities may have a lot more medical expense than other people do. So it's helpful when there's a little bit of a financial break on tickets and that sort of thing. Right. You know, for me, whether you're traveling with a physical disability or not, information is critical. And what drives information is a market. What kind of a market is there to support practical information for people traveling with physical disabilities? It's much smaller than the general market, but it's a sizable market. You mentioned you use TripAdvisor, Rough Guides, and Lonely Planet for uh, information on accessible travels. There's also groups that you mentioned that can give support and share information. Just briefly, what sources of information should people be aware of and be sure to take advantage of if they're planning a trip, for example, to Europe? 
I always like to go to a bookstore because I'm old fashioned and look through guides and see what all is available because a lot of travel guides do list in the back whether there are elevators in a particular place. I find that it's unrealistic for us to plan to go to bed and breakfast because they have so many stairs. And it's important also to look to see what travel arrangements are near a hotel. We have stayed in places that were so far away that we had to take a taxi for 20 minutes just to get into a place where we could get to a restaurant. So those are the kinds of things that I look for in a guide. And you can learn more about sources of information in your book, No Spring Chicken. One very fundamental tip that you stress in your book is don't be proud. If someone offers to take you on a trip, say yes. If somebody offers to help, say yes. Talk a little bit about that. A lot of times, older people in particular don't want to be too much trouble to people, but I think it's really important to say yes. If someone says, I don't care if you're on a scooter or in a wheelchair, we'll pile it all in the car and we'll go away for the weekend. It's just important to say yes and have that experience and get out of the house. I've told someone recently, my first sentence when I was eight months old, was baby go bye-bye. And I think that everybody should... Uh, there's the title the... of your next book, Baby Go yeah. Bye-Bye. Really. I love Every, that. Everyone should give themselves the chance to get out, even if it's just to a park or for a day trip. Oh, yes. And you can enjoy that spirit of travel and the wind in your face and so on, whether you're getting on an airplane or not. Francine, this has been a fascinating discussion. Your book is No Spring Chicken, and I'd like to wrap it up. Just if you could share a moment that that might be of inspiration to people who need a little inspiration, where being on the road made you feel free and, if not able-bodied, at least totally able-spirited. Well, a couple of things come to mind. One, one is being just a little ways off the road in Yosemite where I sat by myself while my husband went for a hike and I was near a stream and I painted a watercolor and I felt like I was out in the wilderness because I hardly saw anyone. People would pass by maybe every half hour, but it was wonderful to be able to sit by a stream and see that. But you didn't have to hike. You used that turnout for the cars, the parking lot. You just got to take that little extra effort. Exactly. There's a place in Scotland that I just love, and it's is rather remote. It's just a turnout, and there's mm-hmm. not usually anyone there, and it's called Rest and Be Thankful, and it's the most beautiful view of this glen. Mm. And the good thing about that is Rest and Be Thankful goes back to when everybody had to get out of the carriage and push it up the hill, and they got to the top, and they said, okay, we'll rest and be thankful. And uh, yes. <laughs> it's easier to travel today, even if, you're, uh, <laughs> even if you have a physical disability, maybe, than back in those days when people were pushing that carriage up those mountain summits. Francine Falk Allen. The book is No Spring Chicken, and I'm inspired by your in- indomitable spirit. Thank you very much for joining us, and happy continued travels. Thank you so much, Rick. Happy trails. Even if the days are getting noticeably shorter where you live, we'll find fun under the sun as we look at the solar pilgrimage author Richard Cohen took next on Travel with Rick Steves. There's a lot more than meets the eye when you investigate how the sun illuminates our lives. In the tradition of the grand scholar-adventurers, Richard Cohen spent more than seven years researching our relationship with the sun. It took him to the banks of the Ganges, atop Mount Fuji, and into the long nights of the Arctic winter to assemble a fascinating collection of facts and stories about the many roles the sun plays in human history. 
He's written a rather brilliant book about it called Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. Richard, thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be with you. So why did you write this book? Ignorance, really. Despite my surname, I had a Jewish father and an Irish Catholic mother. I was sent to my high school, which was run by Benedictine monks, and they really favoured the art subjects. And I think I had one year of physics and no other science subject at all. So I really had this sense of guilt that I didn't know about the sciences. And I didn't know about this star that gives us life. And I set out to look for a book that would tell me not just the solar physics, but really about everything that the sun gets into and didn't find, although the New York Public Library had just under 6,000 books under the heading of the sun, I didn't find the book that really did that for me. So I decided to write it myself. And you visited 20 countries to, to put this work together, and it seems like seeking the sun, you realize that it's not just science, but it's contributing to the arts and to the culture. You wrote about how, uh, for instance, I think 20 flags have the sun as part of the design of their flag. I think it's actually over 30 that have it, if you count the colors which flag makers associate with the sun. And I found that through history, rulers wanted to associate themselves with the sun. I mean, not surprisingly, when you think, you know, we can't look at the sun because it's too powerful for our eyes. That was a wonderful uh, symbol or metaphor for those rulers who wanted their subjects to feel the same way. And from Babylonian times on, the run of people who have associated themselves with the sun, from Hitler and the leading Nazis through to Chairman Mao, the iconography of Mao's times, Cultural Revolution and beyond, was using the sun as its main image the whole time. Think of the beautiful uh, relief uh, from the third millennium BC of Akhenaten, I think history's first monotheist, with the sun shining down on the royal family in Egypt, uh, worshipping, you know, the sun, Aten. Well, that was homage to the sun, but of course it was associating the royal family with the sun. And of course, Louis XIV. The sun king, yeah. The, the whole psychology of the banners that Louis would have during his long reign, which had the sun, sort of the source of all life, shining down on him and bouncing off of him to warm up and bring life to the people. That's not a unique use of the sun, apparently. Well, he became the sun king really by accident. He was very keen on ballet. And when he was 14, he was performing on stage in a ballet written for him and dressed himself up as the sun and got such an ovation from the, the courtiers around him. He thought, well, this is rather a good costume to have. So he made sure he wore versions of it thereafter. That was my favorite uh, photograph in your book, Chasing the Sun, was this uh, painting of uh, Louis XIV dressed up, 14-year-old, almost like he's at a, some sort of a fancy high school play, and he's just Mr. Sun. Everything about him is the sun. Well, it certainly, as you say, is a painting, not a photograph. Mm -hmm. Though when photography came in, it was called initially by various names, meaning the sun art. Hmm. And, um, you know, photography exists because of the sun. And even early cinema, you're talking about the arts, when photography for films began, it had to be done in daylight. And the reason why, really, the film industry moved um, so impressively to California, and to Hollywood in particular, is because there was more daylight there, better sunshine, better films. And uh, taking it before photography, artists would travel to places where they liked the light, and of course the light is just the sun. It took a long time for people actually to paint the sun. If you look right up to the 15th century, you don't find the sun in paintings, except as just a yellow daub in the sky, if it's there at all. And in some um, cultures, Chinese culture, for instance, you rarely see the sun in paintings at all. 
And then you get um, forever an interest in light. But then it was an interest in candlelight, French artists like Latour. And it wasn't until really kind of breakthroughs you get, particularly with the Impressionists, when the sun was seen as not only they wanted to paint en plein air, out in the open, but catching the quality of light. I suppose the first great painter who did that was the, the English painter, Turner. But then you get, obviously, Van Gogh and mm. Monet and that whole gang. Right. Now, before we went on air, someone was saying, well, the sun reaches everywhere, but maybe not in Seattle. So what I'd like to feel is you may be able to um, sponsor the first Seattle artist to, to paint greatly about the sun. We don't know what it looks like here. <laughs> we'll have to look at paintings or other people's art for that. I'm speaking with Richard Cohen, and Richard's book is a unique book. It's a beautiful uh, collection of stories based on his experience in 20 different countries. It's called Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. Richard, you did a lot of traveling to do this book, to put this book together. I love the way you talk about Mount Fuji and, and the sunrise. Take us there a little bit. I was very lucky. I, I'm not a scientist, as I was saying earlier in the program, but I was given a grant by the Frederick Sloan Foundation here in New York, which exists for the greater propagation of science in its various forms. And so suddenly I had this grant that would enable me to travel. And I thought, well, how am I going to frame the book? I thought, well, I'll begin with a, a sunrise and then I'll end with a sunset. And I decided to go to Japan, which after all is the country of the rising sun, and again, thinking of rulers who associate themselves with the sun, it's been a long, long tradition that the emperor of Japan is a direct descendant of the sun god, Amaratsu. And a friend of mine said, well, why don't you climb Mount Fuji? It's the great mountain in Japan. And I realized I was going to be there over the 20th, 21st of June. So Midsummer Day, the most important day in the calendar, on the most important mountain in Japan. But I did climb out of season on my own, and I climbed at night because I wanted to be there for the dawn, which was 4.47 in the morning of the 21st. And, you know, I'm not an experienced climber. Of course, I got altitude sickness. I had various adventures as I made it to the top, which I retell in the book. But some of it was scary, some of it was funny. But mm. when I finally got to the top of the mountain for the sunrise at 4.47, I found that I was there absolutely on my own, and it was a wonderful moment. You were on top of Mount Fuji alone for the sunrise on Midsummer Day, what, June 21st, or what day is that? That's right. Whoa, what an experience. What a great way to kick off a book. How did the sun, from what you learned in Japan, it's a religious thing, isn't it, with their deified emperor and so on? It is a religious thing. It's the basis of Shintoism and belief structures, which took quite a battering after the Second World War. And in fact, General MacArthur told Emperor Hirohito that he had to go on the air and say formally to his people that he was not divine, that he was not um, a direct descendant mm -hmm. of the sun goddess. And Hirohito did that. I think he was worried he might be otherwise tried for war crimes, which is a great issue at that time. I think um, the first week of January 1946, he made this declaration but he made it in such archaic Japanese that MacArthur and the other allies said, oh, yeah, that sounds fine to us. But hardly anybody really heard it or understood what he was saying. Yeah. In fact, the Japanese cabinet had to have certain words in the declaration parsed for them so they understood it. And there's a, certainly a recent movement in Japan to say, well, the emperor never really 
said he wasn't divine. So the present emperor, why not just go back to saying that you're a divine being after all? So the sun still plays a role in Japanese politics. Very much so. You're on top of Mount Fuji on Midsummer's Day. I know from my studies of Europe, it's a big deal in Europe. I mean, Druids boogie at Stonehenge on June 21st, and all of Scandinavia goes crazy for their midsummer festivities. Is that a Western thing, or if you studied cultures all over the world, would uh, the summer solstice be an occasion to party? It's certainly more than a Western thing. For instance, over 3,000 stone buildings around the world which mark the sun either as places of worship or natural observatories, sometimes with Stonehenge or the pyramids, they act as both. But there are cultures where the sun doesn't have the importance that, say, you'd, you'd find in the middle of a Druid settlement or um, amongst the Incas or in a lot of Western Europe. For instance, in Africa, where the sun is so powerful, it's seen largely as a destructive force. It brings droughts and sufferings, and they do grant the sun its power, but they're more inclined to worship earth or water rather than the sun. I never thought about that. Richard Cohen's helping us look at the sun in an interview from the Travel with Rick Steves archives, which we recorded shortly after he wrote his book, Chasing the Sun. Richard's other titles include How to Write Like Tolstoy and By the Sword. His next book explores who gets to write history. It's called Making History, the Storytellers Who Shaped the Past. It's due to be released this March. How is the sun embraced in Hindu culture with a billion people living in, in uh, you know, South Asia? Well, in, in Hindu culture, the sun is probably more important to their religion than anywhere else on Earth. Um, there may be you know, fierce Zoroastrianists or Freemasons who say it's important to them too. Right. But in Hindu culture, they have over three million gods and if you question that, they just look at you pityingly and say, you in the West just don't understand. For instance, in Hindu culture, it's a mark of virility for a man to have a moustache. And you'll see representations of the sun, and that, those representations will have the sun with a large moustache. If you're powerful, then you're going to have a fantastic moustache. And if you're fantastically powerful, which the sun is, why? Better make him have a moustache as well. Incredible. I mean, it all ties in in the way they see manhood, fatherhood. You wrote pretty powerfully about being at the, the Ghats of the Ganges in Varanasi as the sun was setting. Well, I decided to finish the book with a sunset, and rather than do some of the spectacular sunsets, do an awful place, rather than visit the places where these sunsets were famous, I thought I'd go to that culture, the Indian culture, where the sun was so important. And Varanasi is probably the most holy of many holy places in India. And it's a town, city, set on the Ganges. And both in the morning at dawn and sunset, there are rituals in praise of the sun. And I went to those, and I saw these hundreds and hundreds of people flocking at both ends of the day to give praise to this great power in their lives. You know, it's one of the most exotic and powerful and mystical experiences for a traveler to be on a boat on the Ganges close to the steps that go down into the river with all of these pilgrims and, and holy people and worshipers converging on this spot. Wealthy people, poor people, colorful outfits when the sun is just setting. These, um, these steps are called ghats, G-H-A-T-S. And you go to ghat after ghat and each has its own character. 
And sometimes you'll see women have put their saris on these steps, these stone steps to dry. And of course, they're in all the colors you can imagine. So the quality of color as you go, I went in a small skiff along the Ganges, and you go from saris laid out in the sun to people with great yellow markings on their forehead as part of their religious ritual, um, praying from 5.30 or so in the morning on, to the great burial grounds that are dotted along the river banks. And people from far and wide have come to Varanasi to be buried, to be cremated. Mrs. Gandhi's body was, for instance, taken to Varanasi for that purpose. There's bluffs where they've got big stacks of lumber, and on top of that is a body wrapped up, and it's just uh, going back into the environment. Well, if you put your hand in the water in the right place, it'll come up with small bits of human bone um, in your palm. Um, but it all seems natural and healthy, and it's awe-inspiring. And that time in the evening, whether you call it twilight or dusk, and a variety of names and a variety of languages, the French call it Hour of the, the Wolf, I think it is. Incidentally, this quality of light has got its place in literature, um, many poets and novelists write about it. It's also known as a very good time for making films. I mean, Woody Allen, for instance, oh, yeah. loves taking his cameras out and filming scenes during this twilight because he says it's a soft quality of light which lends a special allure to the people he's, he's got on camera. I'm speaking with Richard Cohen, and Richard writes a book called Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. We're talking about how the sun gives us life, but actually in dark corners of the planet, it's, it's actually a physical problem if you don't get enough light. Isn't there a disorder up in Scandinavia, Richard, that, that people have to deal with? Well, there are two disorders. One is we need vitamin D um, to stop us getting rickets and weak bones. And in fact, ironically, in, there's a problem in Saudi Arabia now where women so cover their bodies with only their eyes perhaps um, visible to the outside world that they're not getting enough vitamin D from the sun and it's causing illness. But the other great topic um, which has been written about a good deal in the last few years is SAD, seasonal affective disorder, which is the kind of depression people have during the winter months, varying from um, where you are on the globe, but obviously in those parts of the world, like towards the Arctic, um, where sunlight in the winter months is minimal, and that people fall into deep depressions. Although, I mean, I didn't have any particular agenda on this. I thought, well, I better go to somewhere in the Arctic. And I went to Tromsø, which is mm -hmm. the um, large city in the Arctic Circle. And I went there during what they call the dark period, those six weeks or so, I mean, December and beginning of January, when they say there's no sunlight at all. Not quite true, because they, they do get a weeny bit of sunlight, and it bounces off the snow, so that um, there's a gloom, but not a total darkness. And I spoke to a whole range of people there, um, doctors, astronomers, um, psychiatrists, and I got a very different picture to what I've been reading about in the, in the papers and, and other literature, and that is that Nobody, at least very few people, like getting up in the dark or the gloominess of winter. And that does have an effect on one's mood. But actually to suffer from depression and seasonal affective disorder as properly understood by the doctors, you've got to have a clinical depression first. You've got to um, mm. really be a depressive and then it makes it much worse. So the sun is this, this, it's such an odd thing because it gives you health 
and life. At the same time, of course, too much sun um, causes problems at the other end with skin cancers and a whole range of other diseases. So you've got to get the balance right. Richard, you spent eight years putting this book together, lots of travel. What was the major lesson? I didn't know whether it's a major lesson, but I think it was the fact that people take the sun a bit for granted and it's constantly able to surprise us. So following on from what the sun does to our bodies, I discovered that 25% of people sneeze in bright sunlight. And I also discovered that when the sun and the moon, who together are responsible for, for tides, when they're pulling in the same direction and you get high tide, we all get infinitesimally taller. We've been speaking with Richard Cohen, author of Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. Richard, what's, what's a ritual you encountered that perhaps we can all be inspired by? There's sun rituals around the world. I think one of the ones which was most moving is I went to Peru and I went up into the Andes on their summer solstice and attended the rituals that they have because of their background or history of Incas worshipping the sun. We went to this extraordinarily large field and there must have been 3,000 people there and it was a bit of a commercial enterprise, but it was also genuinely moving. And you had this person dressed up as a high priest, um, not killing a goat as they would have done or killing a virgin as they would have done in years long gone by, but um, at least having a goat at the altar. Although we knew that it was put on for some of the tourists who were there, um, you still felt a tremendous pride in the local people that they knew the sun's power and were able to worship it. And just as the ceremony was ending, simultaneously we had the sun come out and the showers, the, the heavens opened with rain, and there was this glorious rainbow bringing things to a natural close. Richard Cohen, author of Chasing the Sun, the epic story of the star that gives us life. Thank you very much, and lots of sunshine for all of us. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.